Welcome to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. We're really glad you're here. Whoever you are, wherever you're at, join us on the journey. Um, so we're going to, as we've, we've just heard the story of Hannah, and there's Hannah in the back, and you can see she has her eyes cast up to heaven and her hands in prayer. And um, one of the reasons I chose to preach uh, about the story of Hannah, well, one was there were only a couple of choices left when John and Andrea realized they weren't going to be here, full disclosure. I did have a couple of other choices, though. Um, but the other one is that I didn't really know her story very well. And it makes me wonder, just with a show of hands, how many of you have heard this scripture before or, or know this story? Yeah, not, not too many of you, and, and, and me neither. Before I went to seminary, I'd never heard of her. <laughs> um, so Hannah is, a, is an important figure in the story of Israel. Um, Hannah, as we just heard, gives birth to Samuel. And Hannah goes on to fulfill her promise to God. And when Samuel is weaned, she hands him over to Levi, the priest, um, to be dedicated to the temple. And Hannah goes on to have more children, and Samuel goes up to, grows up to be a great prophet. He helps Israel get its first king. And when the first king, Saul, does not work out very well, he helps to usher in David to replace him. And King David is, of course, a, a, key, fi- a key figure in the Hebrew Bible. And in Hannah's story, we hear echoes of women in the Bible who have struggled to bear children, like Sarah, who at a very advanced age um, was blessed with her son Isaac, Um, or Elizabeth, the cousin to Mary, mother of Jesus, who gives birth to John the Baptist. And after Hannah gives Samuel over to Eli the priest, um, she sings a song praising God that echoes the Magnificat. And the Magnificat is a song that Mary sings in Luke's Gospel when she says yes to the angel who brings her news that she will give birth to the Son of God. And both Hannah's song and the Magnificat of Mary are songs that tell how the God of Israel will bring down the powerful and raise up the lowly, songs that herald the coming of a new way to live. But when we first meet Hannah, she is so sad. Um, She is struggling because she and Elkanah cannot conceive a child. This may be the reason that Elkanah has taken a second wife, um, because this was the custom. If the first wife could not conceive, um, could not bear children. And Penina has sons and daughters, and she uses this fact to torment Hannah, adding to her sadness. And we know that infertility is a cause for great heartache. In our times, we know it's associated with a very high likelihood of depression. And there are fertility treatments, but they're not available to all because they are expensive and they're time-consuming. And there's adoption, and that too is not an option for everyone. And none of this is easy. None of this is easy. And so we can understand that Hannah is truly having a difficult time. And for Hannah, there's the added concern that she lives in a society that emphasized the family and not the individual. A society with strong, strong patriarchal values where honor and shame were the true currency. And in this society, if a marriage lasted longer than 10 years without producing children, it could be annulled and Hannah could be left out on the margins. And perhaps even worse, we read in this text that the Lord had closed her womb. That's an incredibly harsh thing to imagine. And so Hannah has also, she also has to contend with the theology of her time that suggests that maybe God did this to her on purpose. And we must read these texts very carefully and try to understand how they reflect the context in which they were written. 
I believe most of us would reject the idea of such a pernicious God. Instead, we might imagine that the author of the book of Samuel may have understood that the Lord closed her womb so that then she in turn would dedicate her child to the temple. And perhaps this was meant to be dramatic storytelling. But we read carefully and we wonder. And it's important to make this point, I think, because often people who suffer infertility um, can feel great guilt. Um, they can feel that they are somehow less and they can imagine that somehow it's their fault. And certainly we live in a society that tends to blame and shame people for health issues. Are you exercising enough? Are you eating well and taking the right vitamins? Um, are you keeping a cheerful attitude? Even today, some folks might imagine that what has happened to them is because God did not want them to have a child for some reason. And we also reject this notion because God, as revealed to us in the person of Jesus, is the God of the cross who knows the worst of human suffering. But God does not cause suffering. We believe in a God who does not spare us the bad things in our lives, but who mysteriously sustains us through the very hardest times. And this is what the story of Hannah is about. When we meet Hannah, she may be at what is the lowest point in her life. Despite how much her husband loves her and favors her, her lack of a child is breaking her. She is despondent. She cannot eat. Maybe the other wife, Penina, had harassed her one time too often and she could no longer bear the torment. Perhaps she's worried about her future security. Maybe she has just been living with the sadness for too long and she can scarcely bear it any longer. We don't know why this is the low point. But she makes her way to the temple and she prays. And as we hear her, we learn that she feels lost and overlooked. Remember me, she prays to God. Do not forget me. She pledges that if God gives her a son, she will dedicate him to the temple. He will live a life serving God. And we can imagine perhaps that what she wants most of all is to feel whole. To feel like she's in relationship with God. To know that she is known by God and to know that God has not forgotten her. And then she prays in silence. Eli the priest mistakes this for drunkenness, but she explains that she is praying and Eli blesses her. And when we read the story, we see that it is at this moment that something has changed in Hannah. She can eat. She is no longer sad. And she goes home and in time she and Elkanah conceive and she births the baby who will grow up to be Samuel, which means in Hebrew, God has heard. The way I read it in this story, what changes Hannah is not that she has given the child that she prayed for, but it is the act of praying itself that is able to bring her peace. We're reminded of the, the writing of Paul um, in the, the letter to the Philippians saying, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When she prays, Hannah experiences the peace that passes all understanding. Now, prayer is a mystery, um, and I don't claim to understand it, but I believe in it. And last week, the Irish poet, Padraig Otuma, the poet and political activist who, who visited this church last weekend, he said in his public lecture, I don't believe in God, but I do believe in prayer. And for many people, I think it would be the other way around. I think they say, I believe in God, but I don't believe in prayer. Um, 
And when we, when we meet Hannah, she's at the end of her rope. And we might imagine that she had talked to every woman in her village, every woman in all the adjacent villages, asking for help, gathering the collective wisdom to help her, conce to help her conceive, but to no end. And at the end of her rope, what Hannah does is let go. She realizes she cannot do this on her own. In her prayer, in her grief, and her anguish, she surrenders, and she asks for God's help. The author Anne Lamott says, help is the first great prayer. In her book called, book about prayer, which is called Help, Thanks, Wow, she says, there is a freedom in hitting bottom, in seeing that you will not be able to save or rescue your daughter or her spouse or her parents or your career, or as in the case of Hannah, her inability to have a child. And Lamont says there is a relief in admitting you've re reached the place of great unknowing. This is where restoration can begin. Because when you are still in the state of trying to fix the unfixable, everything bad is engaged. The chatter of your mind, the tension of your body, all the baggage you carried from the past. It's exhausting. It's crazy making. And she says this when we pray, she says, this is when we pray, rather. She's, we pray, help. Help us walk through this. Help us come through. And when we let go and hand the unfixable over to God, we are acknowledging at last that there are things beyond our control, things we were never meant to fix in the first place. And I'm sure many of us in this room have had these moments at the end of our rope where there's really nothing left to do but to hand things over to God at the end of a marriage when our children grow up and out into the world beyond our control to live their own lives, um, as a loved one lays, lies dying, when all the interventions have been exhausted, and many, many more. In these moments, there's nothing to do but to know that the God of the cross is with us in our suffering and in our helplessness, and that we are not alone. My own experience came when I had to face up to my abuse of alcohol. When I came to the understanding that drinking was slowly poisoning everything good, damaging my health, my relationships, my work. I tried all the tricks. I drank only wine, or I drank only beer, or I drank only on weekends. I'd take a few weeks off drinking, but I'd always come roaring back to it. Predictably, none of these worked, and I had to admit that alcohol was making my life smaller and sadder with every passing day. But I was lucky. I found wisdom and support that helped me. I learned in 12-step programs that I was helpless, but that a higher power could help me, and I had to surrender to that power. And in my understanding, that higher power was God. I had been trying to fix the unfixable by myself, and I had to learn to accept the help of people in my life, to accept the help of people who guided and mentored me, and to surrender to a God who loved me and wanted a better life for me. This happened many years ago. I do not take it for granted, and I'm grateful for this every day. And along the way, one of the things I learned was that in order to surrender, I had to pray. And praying used to be hard for me because I was honestly never sure what to do. I grew up completely outside the church, um, I wasn't baptized until I was 40 years old. Um, some people turn 40 and they get a cool haircut or a fast car, and I joined the church. Um, and most days, most days, it still seems like it was the right choice. Though I, I would like a new car. Um, 
But I learned, I learned for me that prayer should be simple. I mentioned Anne Lamott's book earlier, and she believes that prayer is as simple as help, thanks, and wow. We ask for help. We try to live in gratitude. We try to pay attention and to be in awe of this amazing world we live in, even when times are tough. And prayer is also about being silent. In Hannah's story, first she prays to God, and then the text says she is praying in her heart. And other translations say that she is praying silently. And every religion has a tradition of silence. In Christianity, practices of silent prayer go back to the mothers, uh, the desert mothers and fathers of the third century of the Common Era. And these were folks who fled the chaos and the unrest and the civil war in the Roman Empire, and they went into the desert to live simple lives of silence and prayer. And when we sit in various forms of silent prayer, which we refer to as contemplative practices, we learn to recognize our thoughts and our feelings for what they are. We learn that we are more than our thoughts and our feelings, and we begin to recognize that beneath the chaos of our minds and our emotions, there is a stillness within us, a vast awareness, and this is called being in contemplation. And the Quaker author Parker Palmer says that these sorts of practices help us to see through the deceptions of self and the world and they let us get in touch with the sound of the genuine within, within us and the sound of the genuine around us. And to experience contemplation, he says, is to penetrate illusion and to touch the sacred reality. And finally, praying is not about us. It's not something we do. It's something that we allow to happen within us, and we just need to get out of our own way. Paul says in Romans 8 that we do not know how to pray, but that the Holy Spirit intercedes on our behalf. The Spirit prays through us. It's not about us. The wonderful and late poet Mary Oliver says simply, just pay attention and then patch a few words together and don't try to make them elaborate. This isn't a contest, but the doorway into thanks and a silence in which another voice may speak. It's not about us. Padre Gotuma, the poet, says that prayer can be a rhythm that helps us make sense in times of senselessness, not offering solutions, but speaking to and from the mystery of humanity. And I experienced this rhythm with the Mindful Mornings group, um, which is part of the contemplative ministry. Um, since the beginning of the pandemic, usually every day about 20 of us gather online, and we, we do this five mornings a week, we light a candle, and we say a prayer of thanks, and we acknowledge the land. We center and we listen to a poem, and then we sit together in silence for 20 minutes. And then we pray together. Simple prayers from the heart, lifting up our joys and our concerns. We're praying in silence, but being grateful to know that our, prayer, our prayers are heard and are, they're held in love. And so we begin our days gathered together in community and grounded in love. I invite you all, if you're willing, if you'll take the risk, um, to find a simple rhythm of prayer in your life. And it doesn't need to be complicated. It could be as simple as sitting down and saying in your own way, help and thanks and wow, and then just taking a few moments in silence and just doing that every day. It could be as simple as paying attention to the beauty and the brokenness of this world and asking where in all of that do you find God? And if you try it, 
I promise you, you may surprise yourself. So let's say goodbye to Hannah for today. Unlike most of the windows that we've talked about, um, we don't know who this window is dedicated to. It says, in, lo in loving memory of and beneath it, there's nothing written. And so I think we should just decide that this window is dedicated always in loving memory of whoever is feeling forgotten, of whoever needs to be remembered, and we will pray for them. May it be so. Amen. Thanks so much for tuning in to Hillhurst United Church, the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode and are thinking about someone who might enjoy it too, we invite you to send it their way and help the podcast grow. We're really glad you're here and we'd love to know what you thought about today's sermon. Leave us a review in iTunes or send us an email at communications at hillhurstunited.com. We'd love to hear from you.